Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Lattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, it's uh, it, we're getting into the Halloween season here. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite things about uh, Halloween, one of my favorite like Halloween costumes, Halloween ideas, is, uh, of course, the mad scientist. Have you gone as a mad scientist before? Oh, yes. I've gone as a mad scientist before. And a it, specific mad scientist or just kind of general mad specific, scientist? Specific. Specific mad scientist. Who? I went as uh, Dr. Clayton Forrester from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Excellent. Yeah. He um, who had the... Uh, he has one of my my favorite quotes about mad scientists in general and mad science. He said uh, it would it, he was being asked something or you know there was some complicated issue that came up and he just responded it would take a scientist to explain and I'm simply too mad. So, <laughs> but uh, who comes to mind when you think of uh, mad science and mad scientists? Um, well, you know, definitely some of the ones that we're going to talk about today, Frankenstein. I would say, mm-hmm. um, perhaps on a. <laughs> I, I, I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but I will because, you know, it's a podcast and okay. you guys can't see me. Uh, but I think of that guy from Back to the Future. Did oh, you ever decide on his name? Um, um, Dr. Holiday, Doc Holiday. No, no, you're, th- you're getting your, 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 uh, your movies confused. Yeah, okay. You're, you're, you're talking about Doc Hollywood. Okay. And that was, um, you're the guy with the crazy hair. No, no, that was Doc Brown. Doc Brown, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what yeah, I think. Yeah, he's of. totally a mad scientist, and that's a, yeah, he's a uh, played by Christopher Lloyd. That's a great example of a um, of a cinematic mad scientist. Okay, you know, so that's what I think because he's into crazy, like fringy science, and he's got the hair. He's got the hair. He's he's not playing by the rules. You know, he's you know because I believe the thing was he uh, he was getting plutonium from. Um, from terrorist or something. It's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. But uh, and then ultimately uh, experimenting, w- you know, without like a strict uh, kind of like uh, scientific method uh, uh, going on, you know. Yeah. There's not really a method to his madness. Yeah. But is there a method to some of our mad scientists' madness today? There is. Um, in science, is there a method to their madness and their science? Well, there's there's definitely a method to it. So we're going to talk about two of the biggies today. Yeah, yeah, two of the big. Well, yeah, certainly one of one of the, the biggies, and then another one that has a lot of. Um, uh, that, that really resonates in American culture in the you know the past couple of decades, but uh, but yeah, mad scientists when you when you boil it down, and when they're not serving as just a plot device, they basically embody society's collective fears and misgivings about the uh, advancement of science and how science can be exploited. All right, primal fear of science. Yeah. Now sometimes it is just a stock thing, you know, like Dr. Sure. Clayton Forrester on Mystery Science Theater or. Um, Let's see, uh, the Professor Werner, I believe he was called, in the movie Twins. Like, that wasn't really, uh, that wasn't saying anything important about Did you really science. just bring up the movie yes. Twins? Yeah, wow. because, I mean, that's exa- nobody thinks of Twins and was like, yeah, Twins totally made some really good points about where we are uh, with our, you know, perception of science at the time. No, it was just, the mad scientist was just there to facilitate the running gag that, that was Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger, our brothers. Yeah. And twins. I do um, have that image of them in the white suits right now. <laughs> I wonder if you guys do out there as well. And then sometimes they're just stock villains like Lex Luthor uh, in, you know, the Superman. Uh, he eventually became like more of a politician, but originally he was like a mad scientist or Dr. Doom or, you know, or anytime that somebody's got a name like Dr. Doom or Dr. Satan, you know, anything like that, you know, that's just like some sort of mad scientist situation going on. Uh, and it's an excuse for like crazy scientific abilities and that our hero has to fight. 
But it's a relatively new concept, this whole idea of a yeah. mad scientist. Because if you think about it, scientist, uh, the word scientist really didn't appear in print, um, at least according to some, until 1840. And the idea of a mad scientist is also a pretty new idea. Yeah, you have to, you have to back up a couple of decades from, uh, from 1840 to, uh, 1818 to find, like, the classic one that resonates today, that still, like, Absolutely. the first thing in your mind when you think of mad scientist most of the time. And that, of course, is Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein. Or, the, like, the secondary title for this was The Modern Prometheus. I never realized that. I never realized that was the subtitle or the, the secondary title of, of Frankenstein. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to look over sometimes. They don't always put it in big print, you know. In the, and, and that's the other thing that talking about print, this, this book has been in, in print just continuously since 1818. Um, that's, that's pretty impressive. And as long as we're talking about 18s, it was written by an 18 year old. Yeah, that's the other, like, you know, as, as someone who dabbles, you know, well, you know, dabbles in. You write. Yeah, I write. As, as a writer and a someone lot. who, who writes, you know, fiction as well sometimes, it's like, you, you look at this and it's like, it's this awesome novel. And this, like, she was 18 when she wrote it. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing and a little infuriating. Yeah. And then there's, of course, the famous story behind her, uh, originating. Oh, yeah. Frankenstein. This was her, her husband, Percy Shelley. The poet. Yeah. And then bad boy. The romantic poet. Yeah. Romantic poet. Mm-hmm. And then bad boy, Lord Byron. Yes. Perhaps with his pet bear and his skull that he would drink out of. Because <laughs> he was like the original, like, bad boy of, uh, of, uh, <laughs> of, of literature. Yeah. 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 And they were all hanging out together and they, uh, decided to each write a ghost story. I remember reading about this in the New Yorker. They had a really great, um, very long article about Mary Shelley and all that stuff. Yeah. And the other really interesting thing is that, of course, it was published anonymously because ladies shouldn't be writing and they definitely shouldn't be you know, contemplating some of the stuff that comes up in Frankenstein. Yeah, when it first came out, it was apparently printed anonymously. And um, they later, you know, started putting her name on it. Uh, and apparently she had a really hard time uh, getting anybody to publish it, too. Like, everybody was just kind of like, story. You know, yeah, it's like, like I say, how many things from 1818 are still, you know, uh, you know, making books fly off the shelves these days? So, Prometheus. Yes, that's important. Before we even really get into the plot of uh, Frankenstein, and I think everybody's more or less familiar with the plot, uh, let's talk about why she included Prometheus uh, in the title. You know, you don't do something like that unless it means something. Um, Prometheus was a titan. Back in Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, yeah. He was, this was like, the titans were the elder gods. These were the guys that used to run the show. And then the Olympian gods, like Zeus and company, they ended up taking over. In fact, Zeus's father was Kronos. Um, and who was a Titan. And so he overthrew his father and he becomes, in ch- he becomes the dude in charge. And, but the Titans all, they kind of remain along, uh, you know, around. They're still kicking around doing their own thing while the uh, Olympians are ruling. So along comes Prometheus. Uh oh, Prometheus. What does Prometheus do that gets? Prometheus was an old rabble rouser. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, he was a pretty daring rabble rouser and he, uh, he defied the gods by, you guys are all saying this under your breath right now, stealing the secret of fire from Zeus and sharing it with the human race. Yep. And we've kept it ever since. Yeah, but but Prometheus, we've kept it, and it's been great, but Prometheus was totally busted. Yeah, he was. And his punishment, and there are always the such great punishment. punishments in, uh, in mythology, uh, he was chained to a rock, and then every day, what happens? The eagle swoops down and eats his liver. And then every night? Liver grows back. And then the next morning? Uh, still change? Yeah, eagle comes down, eats his liver again. Every day, <laughs> liver eating going on. And just in torment forever. 
because of this. That is a big bummer, but we were grateful to Prometheus. Yeah, and here's the cool, like, the, basically the, the, the knowledge of fire was forbidden knowledge, you know? Dangerous knowledge that humans were not supposed to have. They were so never meant to have this. What's the obvious comparison here is the, uh, the fruit. Yeah, the, the, the fruit, uh, you know, from the, the tree of, uh, of the knowledge. Apple. Yeah, the apple in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, you know, the book of Genesis. Um, but while it's, it's a lot more, uh, you know, a situation of, ooh, you know, Eve and, and Adam too, though they messed up and they I like that you just put Adam in there. Thanks for doing that. Well, like it or not, it's like a lot of people end up making that, you know, comparison that Eve's the one who really messed up by getting that apple. Though I'm, I don't, you know, agree with that, but, but see it, what you guys are getting. You're not <laughs> just getting a podcast on science day. You're getting a podcast on Adam and Eve and Greek mythology yeah. and some of the fine mad scientists in literature. It's but, a smorgasbord. But so the, the point is, though, that, that unlike Adam and e- the Adam and Eve situation, Prometheus uh, is really seen as a hero. Like he really did a noble thing and paid a really horrendous price for it. Right. Because he's trying to make life better for humanity. Right. So it's not a situation of he did something evil and was punished for it. He did something that the gods didn't like, helped humanity out, but, you know, had dire consequences for him. So let's start talking about that in terms of Frankenstein. So a quick review here. It might be in order. Yeah. Um, in case you guys haven't read it, it's, it's pretty beautifully written tale, uh, with a quote unquote monster you relate to. And has these cultural ponderings that are just as relevant today. You know, when we're talking about things like Higgs boson and Dolly the sheep, as they were back in the ages of, you know, Darwin. Yeah. And it's important to, again, we're talking about the book here and there have been some fine film adaptations, but, uh, but they often, uh, differ from, from the original, um, you know, writing. Um, for instance, in the, in the book, Victor Frankenstein, the doctor, He's not this hysterical madman, okay? Uh, like he, he's certainly acting from a very like self-centered, you know, um, um, you know, point of view, a very, um, you know, egotistical. Play. Yeah, he's very egotistical. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's wanting to do, he, he wants to do this thing because it's going to be awesome and he's going to be really well known for it and it's never been done before. You know, it's like climbing, you know, Mount Everest. Um, so maybe he's not a mad scientist. Well. Yeah, it, it's kind of like maybe he's more realistically mad okay. and not just like loony, you know, um, uh, you know, TV movie of the week mad, uh, you know, because he's also he's really earnest. He's a, he's a solitary idealist, you know, um, let's hear from Victor. OK, yeah, I, I have a Victor quote. This is from the book. He said, um, life and death appeared to, to me ideal bounds, which I should first break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. Kind of like Prometheus with this fire, huh? Yeah, yeah. He's this. We're talking about like Promethean fire here. He wants to to take forbidden knowledge, take something that man has never been able to do, which is going to be create life and uh, and make the world a better place somehow through it, you know, improve the human condition uh, by doing this. Now, the monster... It's important. The monster in the book is not this tum, you know, this, this rampaging half wit. You know, he's he's not mute. He's he's uh, he's not he's just intelligent. A, yeah, he's, he's articulate. A, he's intelligent. He's articulate. He wants to be more human. That in itself causes the problem. He wants to be part of the society that he's uh, confronted with. But you know, then he has his parents to con- to contend with. Yeah, um, Victor wanted to make apparently a pretty monster. Uh, despite the fact that he's like building it out of like, um, corpses and animal parts, apparently, you know, I'm not really sure what Victor thought he was going to get. I think he was, he went into this a little bold, you know, uh, and the monster yet is of course, eight feet tall and pretty hideous. Yeah. And, uh, he ends up abandoning, uh, the monster. He abandons his creation, like right after he makes it. And, uh, and so 
yeah, so the, this, this hideous monster finds himself in like human society, uh, you know, completely shunned as a monster because he's again, eight feet tall and, and ugly as heck. So let's hear from the monster, shall we? Yeah. He, uh, and there's a, the, I mean, the monster is just this great, you know, uh, it's just, you know, the, the monster is really the star of the show. Um, and the monster, of course, is not named Frankenstein. We've kind of uh, gotten to the point where we refer to the monster as Frankenstein, but it's just the monster. I think occasionally Victor refers to him as, as a demon or something. But um, here's a quote from the monster. Did I request thee, maker, from my clay to mold me? Man, did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Because that's the monster's whole deal. It's like I didn't ask to be made and all this, but you made me and then you just abandoned me. Uh, and and now I have to deal with all this stuff. Yeah, you know? he's tormented. Yeah, and, and he's lonely. Yeah, and there's, I mean, the, in a way, the monster. He wants a mate. That's yeah, that's that's what he comes to ask for. And again, we're kind of mirroring uh, Adam and Eve, kind of too. You know, it's like he's he, you know, he wants his mate, his uh, so he's not a lonely uh, and alone in the world. You know. Um, and so Victor complies, right? Yeah, he starts to comply, like he, cause he's like, all right, I'll do it, you know, and then we're splits, you know, we're even. And, uh, then he's thinking, oh my goodness, if I make another, cause the, cause the monster wanted another monster. Like he knew that if he made, they, he made something beautiful and more human, then it wouldn't accept him. So it's, I don't think the monster had heard of the beauty and the beast. If only yeah, Disney if only had read that. Or maybe he, maybe then. he realized that that was unrealistic. He'd already tried. He's the monster. Nobody's falling for him. So he needs another monster to fall for him. Maybe he just needed time. Yeah. Maybe. But he, he wanted a mate, mate now. So, so yeah. So Victor started to put one together and the process was moving along. But then he was like, Oh my goodness. Then these two are going to mate and they're going to be more monsters. And this will just be a new race of monsters. And so, Exponential monsters. yeah. So he freaked out and destroyed it. And as you can imagine, things got, uh, progressively worse from there. Yeah, and it all winds up. I don't really want to give the ending in case there's somebody out there who actually is going to read it and hasn't read it. Yeah, or hasn't had it spoiled by movies. Yeah, just know that it, you know things get worse. Things get vengeful on both sides, and uh, the the endings. Loved really ones are lost, etc. Yeah. So let's talk about the meaning, right? Yes. So the the great thing about the book is that you end up sympathizing with both characters. It's not a you know, it's not a mad scientist creates sympathetic monster situation completely. It's not. It's also not a human creates monster and monster ruins human's life situation. Like, there's a little bit of both. Like, Victor, um, you know, Victor kind of asks for it by abandoning his cre- this creature, you know, and, and not really doing much to try and fix the situation beyond killing the creature. And the monster, you know, even though he comes from a very, you know, relatable point, you know, and, and, it, and he's molded by the society that he's thrust into – he also, you know, becomes vengeful and murderous and um, and becomes the monster that society thinks he is, you know. So what does this say about society and what was going on with science at the time? Well, let's talk about what was happening. I mean, you have things like Charles Darwin's voyage to the Galapagos Islands back in 1831. Mm-hmm. You have James Cook. He's hooking up around the world. Uh, yeah, back in 1768. So those were two. Yeah, those were two examples of, you know. Stuff was getting done scientifically. People were were traveling like they never traveled before. They were fig- figuring out things about um, about where we came from and how life worked. Um, they were even checking out death a little bit. You know, there was some grave robbing, and I'm not sure that was all in the name of science necessarily. A lot of it was, though. Um, as uh, anybody who's uh, read um, Mary Roach, who we talked to in a previous, uh, we interviewed her for a previous podcast. Right. Uh, in her book, Stiff, she goes into the. Um, 
the corp robbing that went on to uh, give medical students and scientists things oh, to yes, experiment that's upon. Right. Yeah, so so that was pretty big. And then there was uh, specifically Shelley was inspired by this guy named Luigi Galvani, and he would electrocute frog legs <laughs> uh, to study, um, you know, the uh, how uh, how bioelectricity works. And um, and yeah, so there were a lot of it. It's, it's kind of like science has has been for a while. There's so many exciting things, and it seems like we're just always on the cusp of figuring out. Something that's really game changing, you know, like synthetic biology. For yeah, example. yeah, synthetic biology, or you know, you know cloning. Um, you know, uh, you know, figuring out, you know, what's going on inside of you know minute particles. Uh, you know, the very you know structure of the universe. It's like we're always just you know, we're always trying to to answer these questions, and you can't help but wonder what if we answer them? What and then if we answer them, what what if we use that information uh, in a way that's unethical or irresponsible? Because, like I say, the monster. Ends up, uh, you know, Victor ends up creating so much, so much more death than he creates life. And it's because the, you know, it's because of society. It's because of the decisions that he makes, uh, in, in bringing this thing into the world, you know? So you can, you can ask similar questions about pretty much any scientific, uh, discovery that we've made. You learn how to release the power of the atom, you know? There's a monster for you right there. You know, so much potential, but then, uh, and, and certainly a lot of great things have come of it, but also tremendous horror. Right. Yeah, definitely. As a society, we're capable of warping these discoveries. Yeah. I mean, it comes down Promethean fire, you know, it can illuminate, it can heat your house, but it can also burn you up. Moving on to the fly. Yeah. Now this, um, you know, we were talking about favorite, uh, mad scientists and my, uh, you mentioned Jeff Goldblum a lot, so I'm not really surprised that <laughs> he comes up. Well, yeah, I, I love, I, Goldblum's a great actor and in the fly, he's just amazing. Um, and, uh, and this, and I'm also a Cronenberg fan and, uh, and this is one of those, uh, those mad scientist films that, I didn't uh, realize that was Cronenberg. Yeah. Yeah. This was like his most mainstream film. Okay. Um, but you know, we we did a previous uh, podcast about science fiction and why science fiction matters. Yeah. And one of the things we mentioned that science fiction is always most interesting in what it tells you about the time period in which it was created, not about the future that it envisions or the the place that it thinks technology will go. And this movie was uh, was made uh, came out in 1986, and it's so it's it's firmly implanted in the 80s uh, in its its mindset. Now you know we're not talking about fashion or anything, but it's. Shoulder pads. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the, the, you can say, I think, um, uh, Gina Davis has some pretty eighties hair going on at times, but, Love um, Gina Davis. She's great in this. She was also in Tootsie. She was. I forgot about that. Yeah, she at was. the time that they made this, um, Goldblum and her were an item, apparently. Yeah. That's some good scoop, Robert. Yeah. Oh, and here's some, here's some extra fun. So this was a, um, this was a Cronenberg remake of a 1958 Vincent Price film. Vincent Price, he of Thriller. Isn't that yeah, the guy? Yeah, yeah, who does the voiceover. Okay. Okay, but it was based on a script by James Clavell, who wrote, who later went on to write Shogun, you know, oh, and wow. all those, uh, film, all those different, uh, uh, books about Japan and Japanese culture. And this was, uh, and that screenplay was based on a short story by this guy named George, uh, Langalan, which, uh, I mean, he never really did anything. Which else. appeared in Playboy. Right, 1957 issue of Playboy. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know. That's just, it's just interesting. You love all that stuff. Yeah, but it, yeah, and it also comes. You know, again, we're saying it's the the film that came out in '86 was very much a, a you know a product of its time, even though it was based on previous iterations. Um, you know, yeah, sure. But like any good remake, it embodied the fears and ideas, right? Yeah. of 1986. 
Yeah. So, so what was going on then? Well, we, as always, you know, there's scientific uh, upheaval going on, new advances in technology. But uh, then, more importantly, we have more importantly, we have a, a slowly thawing Cold War. Glasnost. Yeah, and uh, and AIDS was pretty. I mean, it continues to be a, a big problem today, obviously. But at the time, there was, you know, that was when it really first started to surface. Yeah, people were really concerned about it. It was a, a huge social issue. I mean, it's still a huge social issue. Don't get me wrong, but you know, at the time, it was even more prevalent in the media. And that's when, it, yeah, that's really when it started to creep into our consciousness and yeah. become a reality. So, basic setup of the movie. Yeah. So uh, you have this guy named Seth Brundle, played by Goldblum, and he's a scientist. Brilliant scientist, of Does course. Does he have a ponytail in that movie? I can't recall. I think he might have. Did he have a ponytail? No, I don't think he had a ponytail. He had sort of big hair going on. Okay. Um, and he was like really ripped because he's naked a lot. And there's, there's a lot of sex in the film, which is actually important compared to um, when we, you know, dealing with the, the, uh, contextual stuff that we're talking about here. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's a scientist working on teleportation. Um, which we, we have an article about teleportation. We do. We do. Yeah. 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 Um, Gina Davis features as a journalist. Yep, she's invest. She's here to do a story about his teleportation research. Yeah, he has a telepod. Yeah, he has two telepods. They look kind of like phone booths, big, fancy, futuristic black phone booths. And the idea is that a person will be able to enter one of them, and then they will be like digitized, you know, turned into energy and streamed across the room into another telepod, which will then reassemble the digital information, and you know, bam, you walk out of the second pod. I wonder if they knew about entanglement back in that back in the day. Well, there's a, it, something like entanglement happens because the, 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 the plot basically is, uh, just as it was in the, like the previous versions of this, his, uh, DNA up, ends up scrambled with that of a housefly. Like he finally figures out how it works. Yeah, that is a bummer. I mean, you're doing all this important work on teleportation. But then he gets careless. Yeah. He's like jumps in there. It's the middle of the night and he's like, all right, takes his clothes off, climbs in the telepod, doesn't see that a fly goes in with him. And uh, and really doesn't realize it for a while because he comes out of the other end and feels great. He feels stronger. Yeah, more stronger, like a man. More like a man. Um, it you know ends up being a little more uh, amorous. I think is the word. Okay. Um, and then he starts getting sick. Yeah, yeah. Then he starts getting sick. Uh, body parts start falling off. His body continues to change. Thinks he's dying. Yeah, and he, then he realizes that he his body is is changing into that of some grotesque fly human uh hybrid and uh and it's it's extra disturbing because uh, as the critics have pointed out the first maybe i don't know if it's the first half but the uh, first chunk of the film kind of feels like a romantic comedy you know like goldblum's character is really likable he's a little you know centric but eccentric but he's uh y- you like him you know and uh, julia roberts she's lovely and you really want it to work out it's not julia roberts julia Ro- it's gina, gina davis. davis sorry don't put julia in the fly no, Gina's better. They're right. Um, so yeah, you really want it to work out for these two lovebirds, and then uh, you know, uh, genetic chaos ensues. Let's hear from uh, Let's hear from Seth Brundle. Oh yeah, there are a lot of great um, Brundle quotes in this, but uh, and I and I won't be able to do it justice. But uh, but give it a, a shot. There's Robert. a part where he's rambling. And he's like, uh, the disease has just revealed its purpose. We don't have to worry about contagion anymore. I know what the disease wants. It wants to turn me into something else. That's not too terrible, is it? Most people would give anything to be turned into something else. You know, it's, and so imagine that with a much more gold bloomy, uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, craziness to it. But, uh, but yeah, it's about, it's kind of like about like the dude finds out that his body's betraying him. Yeah. Know? And it, it mirrors a lot of things that are going on, uh, in, in the eighties and, and specifically some high profile reminders of, of death in the eighties. Yeah. So, um, there's the euphoria of, of drug addiction 
kind of mirrored in the in the fly and um, the middle of the night terrors of the cancer patient. And lastly, really, the hopelessness and the, and the need of an AIDS victim. Yeah, those, these points were uh, made by uh, Terrence Rafferty, uh, who is a New York Times uh, film critic. Back in the day. Yeah. Uh, so. So, yeah. And uh, and there's a guy named uh, Eddie Guerrero. Edward, not Eddie Guerrero. That's a wrestler. Edward, Edward Guerrero <laughs> of the University of Delaware wrote a, he wrote an excellent uh, piece titled AIDS as Monster in Science Fiction and Horror Cinema. And this is pretty much the only, uh, like, uh, academic study yeah, of the, the fly. Well, no, no, I, I can see there being, there may be other academic, I've seen some other academic papers that mention the fly, but this is the only academic paper I've seen that mentions the movie Life Force, uh-huh. which was the naked vampire film that, uh, Toby Hooper directed. Right, uh, right. Yeah, but, but that, but let's get back to the fly. Um, Guerrero argued that, um, the whole film is ultimately about society, you know, society's fears about, about AIDS, but in particular about single sexual liberation and its pathological consequences. Um, again, the, the first, the part of the movie is kind of like a romantic comedy, you know, these, these two lovebirds really dig each other. Uh, and then they have sexual encounters a lot in the film. Like it's not for kids, uh, you know, and it takes up a lot of screen time. His sexual appetite's increasing. And then all the bad stuff starts uh, happening. So he he says that it's ultimately about um, the idea that you had a generation that was moving away from traditional family values. You know, they're 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 coming up uh, into a more promiscuous. Lifestyle. Yeah, more promiscuous lifestyle, which leads to hypersexuality, which leads to disease and ultimately death. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. So that was his readout. I think Cronenberg's a little more ambiguous when he's been asked about it in interviews. But, but that's the thing about like great art. You know, you can, you can look at it in the context of its time and it, you know, you can just go wild with, with figuring out what it can, what it means, you know, the different meanings to it. But let's get back to what it says about science or at least what we think it might say about science. You, I mean, on the one level, there's this, um, Typical kind of mad science sense that reckless, powerful science destroys. It turns you into a fly. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, yeah. It's just a, you know, forbidden knowledge. You weren't meant to tamper in God's domain. And now, you know, you have fly eyes. And there's also, (laughs) would fly eyes really be so bad? I mean, they would be big, but they could see, I mean, they could do all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. He could do really cool stuff for a while in the picture, but then it just got worse and worse. But there's also this sense that um, despite all of our scientific and technological achievements, humans are still tragically mortal and, you know, susceptible to morbidity and mortality. Yeah. MMWR. Yeah, totally. You can, you can uh, you know, send a dude across the room and it is a stream of like digital data or energy or something. But, you know, we still get sick. We still die. And Indeed. That, and that's something that we're, we're always going to, well, I don't know about always, but... For the foreseeable future, we're going to be pondering that. But not to end it on a you know completely negative note, I'm going to mention one last uh, mad scientist that's also one of my favorites, and that's Dr. Kurt Leopold yeah. in the movie Zat. That's Z A A T, and this was also known as the blood. Who's that? Blo- like as yeah, a- like who's that? I guess as but, opposed to who that? Yeah. <laughs> But it's also known as uh, the Bloodwaters of Doctor Z uh, because that's what it was uh, titled when uh, Mystery Science Theater did a send up of it. But this is a mad scientist, like a really cheap, cheaply filmed, like a uh, uh, picture that takes place in Florida, and this mad scientist turns himself into a giant catfish in an attempt to take over the world. And it just, it's just so awkward, and he, he just seems so lonely, and it's like really bad film. 
I can't I help but love I think if I were meant to encounter the, or I think if I were meant to take over the world, I would, I'm not sure I would pick, uh, being a catfish. Yeah, I'm not sure how I thought of it. Like, he's just kind of like, I'm going to totally become a giant catfish. That's like step one. And then like step two, take over the world. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? So those are two of our favorite mad scientists. Uh, who are yours? Tell us about them. Yeah, let us know. Send us an email at uh, sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. Oh, and I have a quick listener mail here uh, for us from Eric, who, uh, who's writing to us from Sweden. And he says, uh, hi, I just wanted to give you a tip uh, for a series of really awesome novels in relation to your discussion of the history of science. In the latest podcast about the scientific method and its history, you commented on Sir Isaac Newton and his work for science and also his interest in alchemy. A great series of novels uh, where, where, uh, where this is a big part uh, is The Baroque Cycle by Neal Stephenson. Uh, it's for nerds, that I admit, but if you don't mind the length, I assure you, you won't be disappointed. Regards, Eric from Sweden. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I've only read one book by Neil Stevenson. I think it was yeah, Snow Crash, but I've been tempted to read his other gigantic novels. Indeed. Hey, if you guys have anything you want to share with us, do connect with us on Facebook. We're Stuff in the Science Lab or on Twitter, too. We're Lab Stuff. So that's all we got today. Thanks for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.